Hello everyone and welcome to the Buku Review. My name is Elliot. I'm Reese. And today we'll be talking about The Remains of the Day by Kazuo Ishiguro. So, according to John Updike, a primary concern of his was to give the mundane its beautiful due. And well, is there anything more mundane to the British imagination, or to those inclined to imagine up a quintessentially British scene, than the country life of the English landed gentry? Tea and papers in the garden for the one week of summer, tea and papers in the drawing room through the rest of the year, a middle-aged man, greying hair in a fancy suit, plonked at the end of a fine oak table that runs a quarter mile long, just taking in the humdrum of wealthy days. And who's that in the background, ironing out the Sunday Times? The faceless chap in monochrome. Oh, that's the butler, says Kazuo Ishiguro. <laughs> <laughs> it's so nice to have the author in the, in the studio. And I'm going to write a man booker winner about him. I'm going to give him his beautiful Jew. Wow. I'm starstruck. <laughs> starstruck. <laughs> Ishiguro, of course, was not the first author to start a butler in their work, though he's proof that P.G. Woodhouse did not retire the genre with his inimitable Jeeves. Tell me, has any character been better celebrated by a novelist than Bertie Wooster's man? Has any character been possessed of such a wit, such a capacity for banter as Reginald himself? Perhaps not. And Ishguru certainly hasn't come up with one in Mr. Stevens, the narrator of The Remains of the Day. Stevens, no matter how he tries, just can't work out the banter to impress his new American master. The new master of the now mostly dust-sheeted Darlington Hall, as we find it at the start of the novel. This is maybe understandable, because witticisms were not a part of Stevens's job description under his old employer, Lord Darlington. But dignity was. Dignity was required. Dignity is something Stevens has an abundance of, so he figures. And dignity is something he talks at length about, or writes about. I'm not sure which he's doing. To you, Elliot. Okay. <laughs> and dignity is something he talks at length about, or writes about, on his motoring holiday up north. And here I'm going to defer to Sir Salman Rushdie, who in an introduction to the Everyman edition gives a rather perfect and concise summary of the plot. The surface of the remains of the day is almost perfectly still. Stevens, a butler well past his prime, on on a week's motoring holiday in the West Country. He tootles around, taking in the sights and encountering a series of green and pleasant country folk who seem to have escaped from one of those English films of the 1950s in which the lower orders doff their caps and behave with respect towards a gent with properly creased trousers and flattened vowels. It's a long sentence to read. Nothing much happens. The high point of Mr. Stevens' little outing is to visit Miss Kenton, the former housekeeper at Darlington Hall, the great house to which Stevens is still attached as, quote, part of the package. Even though ownership has passed from Lord Darlington 
to a jovial American named Faraday, who has a discerning tendency to banter. Stevens hopes to persuade Miss Kenton to return to the hall. His hopes come to nothing. He makes his way home. Tiny events, but why, then, is the ageing manservant to be found near the end of his holiday, weeping before a complete stranger on the pier at Weymouth? Why, when the stranger tells him that he ought to put his feet up and enjoy the evening of his life, is it so hard for Stevens to accept such sensible, if banal, advice? What has blighted the remains of his day? I guess that's the big question to explore here. Or rather, it's a question to which Ishiguro gives us an answer point blank in the final few pages. It's that answer we'll wrestle with. But let's build up to that. First, can we return to this Woodhouse comparison, Elliot? It's a, it's a shadow that's impossible to evade, I imagine. Just because Stevens is a bit damp, that isn't to say, though, that The Remains of the Day is a humorless novel. It's actually pretty funny at some point, isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't it, Elliot? That's a, that's a lovely intro and, and really, really eloquently done. Um, <laughs> you can take a, a, a big drink now. I'll have, to, I'll have to leave the Woodhouse to you, uh, as that's not exactly my area of expertise. Being deprived uh, of, of an understanding of the great vocation uh, disqualifies me as an Englishman by your reckoning. So consider me stateless. <laughs> but sure, no, it's, it's, a, it's a funny novel, um, which is great because so many works of this type, by which I mean involving big English stately homes, um, which might as well be the name for all the kind of depth that you find in them. Um, and I mean, given the suffocating kind of ubiquity of TV shows like The Crown, uh, they neglect... Just a warning to the listeners here, you might get burned. Really laying it on, though, you know? Yes. Yeah, uh, what? Sorry, we're no, it's fine. It's fine. Okay. Um, given the kind of ubiquity of, of all of these types of shows, like The Crown, they neglect to add humour. I think of, of Ian McEwan's Atonement. It's not funny. It's not, it's not at all funny. Um, <laughs> Let's not start McEwan bashing this early. <laughs> Wait till I bring up Julian Barnes. That's <laughs> It, 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 no, it, Julian Barnes is funny. He's, he's a funny guy. But it, it just we're laughing at him, not with him. <laughs> but uh, what, what's what's also, I think, um, somewhat daring about the novel is that it's funny despite the historical context. And that's maybe because the retelling of events is distance. Uh, and it's not exactly easy to make someone who is complicit in fascist sympathising funny, but it works. And my favourite joke is the cock crow joke, um, which is uh, one of the only kind of out-and-out jokes in the book. If I can read this part, it's in my edition on uh, page 138. So Stevens is, uh, is, is, on, one, is on his jaunt around the countryside and he's uh, staying at an inn. And uh, he gets chatting to the, to the locals. Eventually, one raised his voice and said to me, It seems you've let yourself in for a night upstairs here, sir. When I told him this was so, the speaker shook his head doubtfully and remarked, You won't get much of a sleep up there, sir, not unless you're fond of the sound of old Bob, he indicated the landlord, banging away down here right the way into the night, and then you'll get woken by his missus shouting at him right from the crack of dawn. Despite the landlord's protests, this caused loud laughter all around. 
Is that indeed so? I said. And as I spoke, I was struck by the thought, the same thought as had struck me on numerous occasions of late in Mr. Faraday's presence, that some sort of witty retort was required of me. Indeed, the local people were now observing a polite silence, awaiting my next remark. I thus searched my imagination and eventually declared, a local variation on the cock crow, no doubt. <laughs> Which, uh, between you and me, is a is a is a sensational joke, mm-hmm. and it's it's a it's a great one to have in your uh, back pocket to recycle every now and again, as Stevens does. It's not the only time in the in the book that he, you know, it, it, the first time he uses it, he gets such a, a rapturous response that it is that the word rapturous. rapturous. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, why not? Um, and you know, I couldn't pull it off. And the reason it works, I think, so well is because he's so pompous. Mm. That jarring contrast between his pompousness and this kind of crap joke. The incisive and ever welcome Julian Barnes no. says that Ishiguro endowed his butler with an impeccably controlled and suburban Mandarin, a mixture of uh, high style and low thought. High style and low thought. He's like a reverse vampire, Julian Barnes. <laughs> he always intrudes whether he's invited in or not. What, what were you saying that the joke repeats? Does he repeat the cockroach? He says it to uh, his, his, his gaffer as well, uh, Mr. Faraday. Yeah. Earlier in the book. But oh, yeah, uh, it... but the the point that Julian Barnes makes, uh, I'm not sure if I'm... If we, if we say his name another time, he's going to appear. <laughs> God. Sorry, what were you saying? I'm not sure if I'm misunderstanding what Julian Barnes uh, said. This kind of uh, pontifical, elegant fellow plucking something out of a joke book. It gives us a helping of, 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 of pathos to some degree because it's one of the few hints that he has uh, other levels. He's not just a, a butler. That's, that's it's interesting. Uh, you should use those words. So I'll say this and then I'll come back to disagreeing with Julian Barnes. In an interview with the Paris Review, or direct competitors, the Paris Review, <laughs> Ishiguro notes that, quote, Jeeves was a big influence. There was some pathos in the way he would come out with a dry line for something that would normally require a more frantic expression. And Jeeves is the pinnacle of that. And I have not read that interview, so... I think it... Um, I'm sorry, I just can't get Julian Barnes out of my head. I have to disagree with the high expression, low thought. I, I don't see what in here is low thought. He's actually quite a philosopher. Mm-hmm. Small matters, it may be, but I mean, his nights are spent with other more serious butlers going into analysis of their profession, mm-hmm. what it takes to be a good butler, to be dignified, to be a leader, to be a gentleman, those kind of things. And that's, I don't see how that's a low thought. Um, quite condescending, I think, of Julian Burns say that. There's a, there's a great bit in the review as well where uh, Julian Barnes, it's in the last paragraph, he starts it with GB and then he says, Great Britain, Great Butler. Ugh. What does that mean? Ugh, I don't know. Julian Barnes. <laughs> um, I, I was going to talk about this later, but the Optite quote where it's a primary concern of his was to give the mundane its beautiful Jew. I've always thought that to be one and the same with Nabokov's instruction for writers, which is to always caress the details. But I'm, I think they're being treated as, as two slightly different things in, in The Remains of the Day. 
I wouldn't say that when he's talking about his staff plan or reviewing the, the quality of paving stones out in the garden, that that is really caressing the details. It's caressing details that would, would be furthest from Nabokov's mind, I think, because they're not stylistically important. They're not revealing about the character or anything like that. We already know that Stevens is, um, is a bit haughty totty Hoity-toity? 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 I think hoity-toity. I think, yeah. The Irish. I think Nabokov coined that, didn't he? Did he? So we don't really need those kind of details. It's almost distractions. So we're looking over here at the, the meaningless stuff, and it gives less and less room for the truly meaningful stuff to happen. All the meaningful stuff's left behind the shutters of the novel. And eventually, in the end, the shutters are kind of blown open and it's so much more impactful. And I guess, like I said in the introduction, it's, it's more Stevens that gets his, his beautiful Jew rather than the, the things around him, uh, his setting, his circumstances. It's, it's he himself that for a moment truly opens up as a character and leaves himself bare emotionally uh, to someone we can sympathise with. Does that make sense? Is that, does that go in anything or what you were saying? Yeah, yeah, no, no, I think so. When you say it, his character's kind of blown open at the end, we get little hints throughout, little cracks. Uh, his jocular bantering, hinting towards different parts of the canvas that, that we might not have seen of, of Stephen's character. That also helps with the humour, though, because making him such a drip, it's Ishiguru making fun of his own mm-hmm. character, how blind he is to how he's coming across. It's quite cruel for an author to do. Yeah, but um, um, we'll come to it in a bit, but maybe well-deserved as well. Oh, what do you think? Oh, Christ. But uh, that's later on. <laughs> yeah. tell, t- tell us more about your views on the crime. On the, the crime. <laughs> you know, um, Paul Thomas Anderson, the movie director, when he was, when he was um, filming Phantom Thread. Have you seen Phantom Thread before? No, <laughs> It's a really good film, but it's set in 1950s England, and it's about a dress designer. And he said... Before they filmed it, they muddied up the film because he said, there's no way this is looking like the crown. <laughs> I'd, I would find that a lot funnier if I'd seen either the crown or Phantom Thread. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I haven't seen the crown either. That's why I'm making fun of it. It's probably quite good. It's Daniel Day-Lewis. It's like I've never read any Julian Barnes. Daniel Day-Lewis. It is Daniel Day-Lewis, yeah. Daniel Day-Lewis and um, Leslie Manville. And it's, it's a really good film. Really film. And this is a really good book, isn't it, Elliot? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's fine. Yeah. Are we done? <laughs> mm. Well, we're going to break up the, the chat about Ishiguro with what will be a recurring segment and already a fan favourite. What are we drinking? Elliot, what are you drinking? I'm blowing the doors off, getting ready for a, for a brawl. I'm drinking green tea. What are you drinking, Reese? I'm uh, in, in prep for uh, 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 <laughs> an evening. <laughs> it's oolong tea, or oolong cha, as they call it in uh, China. We hope everyone's uh, staying hydrated. Yes. Okay, cheers. Cheers, cheers Reese.
there's this scene in the middle of the novel where Stevens' dad is also butler and now under his employ is upstairs dying of old age. There was a very withheld meeting between the two of them. And then Stevens has returned downstairs where there's a party going on. So uh, he's got dripping <laughs> his tears into the champagne of Lord Darlington's guests. But he's been driven by a sense of duty. And he's not even acknowledging his grief. I, I think the fact that he's, he's crying is a throwaway line in there. He, he notices it all of a sudden. So he's not acknowledging his grief because of the demands he imposes upon himself to carry out his duty with dignity. And that's a constant refrain in the book whereby Stevens will set himself the question, what makes a great butler? And the answer is always dignity. Yeah, this scene, yeah. So he's, he's, yeah, he's waiting on the, the guests while his dad breathes his last up the, the stairs. I think it's darkly comical because, you know, it's, you kind of like, it's not a light not a light topic of comedy. Uh, last I did the rounds of the comedy clubs. But because it's uh, it's quite reminiscent of his, of his father's favourite story, uh, The Legend of the Dignified Butler in India, um, which I have here. There was a certain story my father was fond of repeating over the years. I recall listening to him tell it to visitors when I was a child, and then later when I was starting out as a footman under his supervision. I remember him relating it again the first time I returned to see him after gaining my first post as a butler, to a Mr. and Mrs. Muggeridge in the relatively modest house in Allshut, Oxfordshire. Clearly the story meant much to him. My father's generation was not one accustomed to discussing and analysing in the way ours is, and I believe the telling and retelling of the story was as close as my father ever came to reflecting critically on the profession he practised. As such, it gives a vital clue to his thinking. The story was an apparently true one concerning a certain butler who had travelled with his employer to India and served there for many years maintaining amongst the native staff the same high standards he had commanded in England. One afternoon, evidently, the butler had entered the dining room to make sure all was well for dinner when he noticed a tiger languishing beneath the dining table. The butler had left the dining room quietly, taking care to close the doors behind him, and proceeded calmly to the drawing room where his employer was taking tea with a number of visitors. There he attracted his employer's attention with a polite cough, then whispered in the latter's ear, I'm very sorry, sir, there appears to be a tiger in the dining room. Perhaps you will permit the twelve balls to be used. And according to legend, a few minutes later, the employer and his guests heard three gunshots. When the butler reappeared in the drawing room some time afterwards to refresh the teapots, the employer had inquired if all was well. Perfectly fine, thank you, sir, had come the reply. Dinner will be served at the usual time, and I am pleased to say there will be no discernible traces of the recent occurrence left by that time. The last phrase, no discernible traces left of the recent occurrence by that time, my father would repeat with a laugh and shake his head admiringly. Yeah, his dad's the tiger. His dad's the tiger. The tiger in the room. Or out <laughs> of the room, even. Um, this is, yeah, his tiger. This is what he has to go through to achieve the true dignity of a great butler. And it's, um... It's it's pretty awful that the um that it's his father dying, which is the test for him. But there's a there's a kind of dark irony in that because what he's essentially doing is propping up Lord Darlington's important meeting. He's essentially keeping the wheels of something truly unjust going. You know, he's missed his da his father dying for a for a kind of a lost cause and certainly not a a just cause. But I suppose we'll come to that. But what what did no, you think? No, I was just going to ask you there because 
I mean, the, the book is laid out whereby Stevens is recounting these episodes from his own life on a journey up the West Country. I was wondering the significance then of these events that he chooses to include. As if he's got his own agency, I know he's just a character. But why would he include an event like that if not to show that he has achieved a new level of professionalism as a butler? Right. It's quite frightening. It's, I, I can see why some people don't like Stevens. But what you were saying, he is thinking back in his life while he's also coming to terms with his role within a household that was very much the centre of Nazi conspiracy within England. Uh, or I should say the UK. Yeah. It's the Scotsman you trying to put it all on the Englishman. <laughs> it's hard to tell how much he fully comprehends any kind of personal guilt towards his role in uh, this kind of ruse, or whatever you want to call it, <laughs> with Nazi Germany. Um... When he's telling this story, like, I, I missed my own dad's death because I was serving these horrible people. Yeah. Or if it really is just, you know, this is the height of dignity. Yeah. Well, I mean, no, it comes into our next point, which is about dignity. So, well, his, his concept of dignity is questioned several times, just that we know from what he tells us in the book. I think it would be nice to touch on his relationship with Miss Kenton, the, the housekeeper at Darlington Hall. His relationship with her makes it clear that such kind of respect that he carries around in his professional life does not stretch to any personal or, or interpersonal matters. Um, you know, cold couldn't sum him up. Stale could maybe do it. But there's the time when he stands outside the door of Miss Kenton's room, certain that she's just behind the door crying her heart out, and he doesn't enter. Uh, there's another point where Lord Darlington, uh, after coming under the kind of influence of Oswald Mosley and, and, and that kind. Bad eggs. Bad eggs. Damn bad eggs. Um, <laughs> God, she's thrown me. <laughs> so, there's this point where Lord Darlington, after coming the, under the influence of the black shirts, where he calls Stevens into his office and tells him, to sack the two Jewish members of staff because they cannot be trusted. And this, this does not go down well with Miss Kenton, who threatens to leave with those two uh, staff members herself if Stevens goes through with the sacking, which she doesn't end up doing. The Jewish members mm. of staff are sacked. Yeah. I mean, not, uh, not, not 20 pages before the sacking, Stevens says, and I quote, For our generation, I think it's fair to say professional prestige lay most significantly in the moral worth of one's employer. Dear me. Some months later, Lord Darlington kind of wakes up from this <laughs> anti-Semitic haze and says, you know, can, Stevens, can you track down those two women that were on staff um, and see what we can do for them financially or something like that? He goes out to see Miss Kenton in the outhouse to tell her the good news, as he puts it, that Lord Darlington is, is shown some kind of uh, guilt or some kind of second thought towards their firing. But you know, when he, he says this to Miss Kenton, he makes it clear he was not so happy with Lord Darlington's decision either. He says, quote, What's done can hardly be undone, 
but it is at least a great comfort to hear his lordship declare so unequivocally that it was all a terrible misunderstanding. I just thought you'd like to know, Miss Kenton, since I recall you were as distressed by the episode as I was. And of course he wasn't, he, or he didn't outwardly show that he was distressed at all, uh, which leads Miss Kenton to feel betrayed. And just in the back of the quote that you said, to herself take ownership of her own conscience, of her own self-worth, by recognising the fact that because she didn't leave, she was, quote, a coward. She felt cowardly. And if only, she says, I'm paraphrasing now because I can't find it, <laughs> if only Stevens had told her at the time, then at least she would have had some comfort. At least she would have had someone to sympathise her own feelings of guilt, that these two Jewish women were being cast away from not just their their job, but their home. They lived at Darlington Hall. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's no indication from Stevens until after the fact that, that he disapproves of this. I mean, I, I think we know after some time in the novel that he's more than an unreliable narrator. So at the time when he, when he dismisses the Jewish workers, we can take a lot of what he said before as I suppose a kind of groundwork that he's laid in order to excuse Darlington. He's maintained before that the accusations against him are complete nonsense, utter nonsense, I think he says. He's placed emphasis on the idea that Darlington was trying to work against the terms of the Treaty of Versailles for the good of the German people. But this uh, metamorphoses pretty quickly into out-and-out anti-Semitism. But, you know, when it comes to something like this, he can't, Stevens, he can't equivocate or dance his way out of the allegation. And it's one of the few times in speaking to Miss Kenton about it that he that he actually um, goes against Lord Darlington, or it's not so much going against because, as I say, it's after the fact. It almost comes as a relief. The fact that Darlington has admitted there was a misunderstanding is what he calls it. Yeah, he says it's regrettable. <laughs> yeah. Um, the fact that that happens, it's, it's only after then that Stevens feels able to to relax into his own emotions on the matter. Yeah, he still, you know, and he still, he still does it, sacks the Jewish members of staffs, and he still goes on serving Darlington despite it. You know, he could, as as Miss Kenton said, she thought about he he could have quit, and I mean, especially if if he if he wants to serve someone with with moral worth, and it makes you wonder, with the groundwork he's laid with the with the Versailles stuff, with any out and out accusations saying that that they're untrue, if it's Darlington he's trying to excuse or whether he's trying to excuse Stevens, that is, his own hand in these events. Mm. Because, you know... How can the reader come to terms with that, though? I really sympathise with him. Um, it's not necessarily that I liked him and everything he did, but at least it was made understandable by Ishiguro. Like, all the thought processes, <laughs> you maybe wish, wish he acted differently, yeah. but you can you can see the, the trails that have led to his actions and... But again, I, I don't know how we, you know, the point of him being unreliable is that we don't know how much we can trust what he says or how he remembers things or anything no. at all. So don't bother reading. <laughs> you, there's no answers. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I'm, I'm being facetious, but I mean, that's a good thing about the, the novel is there's all these kind of different lanes that Ishiguro leads us down. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, he really isn't. It's whether, right, yeah. whether he's he's morally complicit mm -hmm. yeah, is more of the thing. Yeah, because yeah, I mean the Jewish workers are gone. Whether he sacks them or not, you know, someone else will do it. Yeah, or Darlington will do it. You know. Yeah, and and I think that is the reason that, that a reader can can sympathise with him. 
is in a role that has absolutely no agency. And so while these decisions are, are being passed, all, all he can do, perhaps, is to carry them out. Because otherwise, he himself would leave his home, his livelihood, at a time when butlering is, is a dying profession anyway. Butling. No, but I mean, he, he, he says on various occasions that part of being a great butler in his book is to keep these, these great events of history turning and to serve them in some way. And he never kind of says at any point, hmm, I didn't serve a great part of history. I served, you know, a regrettable kind of bad <laughs> well, part no, of history. He does it. He does near the end, but I guess we'll, we'll come on to that. So, so Lord Darlington is important to give him some context because it's not, it's, it's not set in stone that he is actually anti-Semitic. Like he is a Nazi supporter, Nazi sympathizer. It could just be that he's an absolute dupe. He's a rube. Stevens justifies it in the beginning by saying the Lord Darlington is quite friendly with some German aristocrats that um, landed in poverty after the First World War. Lord Darlington has a problem with the Treaty of Versailles because it was too harsh against the kind of English gentleman code that once you defeat your enemy, you pick them back up, you help them back up. He thought it was, it was anti-English what was happening to the Germans at the hand of the Americans and, and Britain and the French. Yeah. I, I just think to some degree that's just him laying the groundwork for any excuses that he has later on. I mean, quoting from the text here, he says, uh, he's, he's, a li- he's literally a liar. He says, and the allegation that his lordship never allowed Jewish people to enter the house or any Jewish staff to be employed is utterly unfounded. Except, perhaps, in one respect to one very minor episode in the 30s, which has been blown up out of all proportion. And as for the British Union of Fascists, I can only say that any talk linking his lordship to such people is quite ridiculous. So Oswald Mosley, the gentleman who led the black shirts, was a visitor at Darlington Hall on, I would say, three occasions at the most. So he just lies. Well, this is the problem with a, a thingy narrator, untrustworthy narrator. Yeah, well, that's it. Yeah. The movie, I don't know if you watched the movie yet, no? No, no, no. So in, in the movie, they, they really have fallen down along the lines of Lord Darlington is an idiot, but he's also very evil. That scene where, um, it's not in the book, where Darlington walks into his office and the two Jewish members of staff, refugees from Nazi Germany, as they are in the film, are starting a fire. Uh, not, not to burn the office down, I should say, but starting a fire in the fireplace. There, there is absolutely no justification. Um, they're not trying to burn the place down. They're relighting a fire in the fireplace and Darlington sits down at his desk, starts reading, and he keeps looking up before grabbing another book from his, his shelves, opening it up, and then there's a voiceover. It really, I don't know if uh, Oswald Mosley was a prolific writer, but it sounds like something he would write, or it just sounds straight from Mein Kampf, just anti-Semitic bile. And he looks up menacingly at the two Jewish refugees, these two girls, and starts twirling around his, his letter opener knife, and just the next minute they're gone. It's so deliberate, and none of that, none mm. of that's in the book. It strips it of any kind of ambiguity there. Sure. I don't think the film necessarily had to do that. I mean, I'm assuming that because there has to be like some sort of visual... Heightened tension, yes. But we don't need to spell out that a bad thing's been done by making the person who's, who's done them look evil, because, as I'm sure you're aware, evil people look like the rest of us. The devil walks uh, at our side. For <laughs> sake. What the uh, hell? <laughs> I will cut that. 
Yeah, so I, th I think this is the point, like with when his father is, is dying upstairs and he's getting on with his job, like when there's all these fascists visiting the house, all these dirty dealings going on. It's, it's when dignity, which, which he defines himself by, it's when that starts bending into denial. It's emotional denial, a moral denial. I, but there's, it, it goes beyond that into quite a, an extreme scene where he becomes the point of ridicule for Lord Darlington and his friends in a debate about whether democracy is is worthwhile or not. They ask him in and say, do you know anything about the shipping manoeuvres and blah blah blah? And, and he says, no, I'm afraid I don't. And Do you know anything about our arms trade with blah blah blah? And Stevens is forced to reply, no, I don't. And he's off sort of laughing and laughing at him. And, and then just send him away quite coldly. So after being humiliated uh, in the drawing room of Darlington Hall, Stevens is, is presently on his trip up to... He's at Devon on his trip up north, um, where he has to stop in just a, a family's home. He's taken in by a family. A bunch of friends come round mistaking him for a kind of ruling class tough himself, and they start asking questions. Do you know Churchill? That kind of thing. And Stevens is just just adopts the the role, doesn't he? He's, he says, yes, I know Churchill. He was round the, the house a couple of times. He never says, oh, actually, I'm just the butler. In the, the living room of, of this family's, he encounters a, a Mr. Harry Smith, who's very politically active. He's working class and believes that dignity is defined by having a political say. And that's something that Stevens, despite his experience in Darlington Hall, has this to say about. Even taken on their own terms, his statements were surely far too idealistic, far too theoretical to deserve respect. Up to a point, and this is, this is someone basically, I mean, they're both working class, so he's speaking down <laughs> to someone in the same social level as him. Up to a point, no doubt, there is some truth in what he says, in a country such as ours, people may indeed have a certain duty to think about great affairs and form their opinions. But life being what it is, how can ordinary people truly be expected to have strong opinions on all manner of things, as Mr. Harry Smith rather fancifully claims the villagers here do? And not only are these expectations unrealistic, I rather doubt if they are even desirable. There is, after all, a real limit to how much ordinary people can learn and know, and to demand that each and every one of them contribute strong opinions to the great debates of the nation cannot surely be wise. It is in any case absurd that anyone should presume to define a person's dignity in these terms. So it goes beyond just... What was the quote you said earlier about the height of his ambition is to kind of hang in, hang in the coattails of... Oh, yeah. For, so for, for our generation, I think it's fair to say professional prestige lay most significantly in the moral worth of one's employer. Is that the one? Yeah, that's, that's the one. So it's, not, it's just not just in the moral worth of the employer. Here Stevens is, not just impersonating his employer, but is truly given over, convinced by his employer, who's proven to be kind of wayward in the old uh, mental state, <laughs> as a Nazi sympathizer. He's given over to all of his opinions, even if Stevens himself has been the butt of the joke in arriving at those oh, that's opinions. That's terrible. Is that, is that 
pun on purpose. Oh, just the butt. Because he's a butler. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, God. Well, let me check my notes. Yeah, no, yeah, no he's, a, he's a butler. He's a butler. Yeah, he's right. he yeah. He's taken on board Darlington's views on democracy, I guess. Uh, he says a, a bit earlier, I think, from that, he says, Debates are conducted and crucial decisions arrived at in the privacy and calm of the great houses of this country. And I suppose, having believed so much in this and having spent so much of his time in, the, in those great houses watching essentially history unfold, the movement of political power away from those great houses runs counter to his worldview. And it would explain why he has such a, a strong reaction against just debate, <laughs> effectively. Sure. Though, though, though that is... Though, 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 <laughs> though that is the world he, he now finds himself in. Maybe this is part of an existential crisis, because mm. what is he... Late forties, he's not late forties. He's in. He's living in the late forties. Mm-hmm. Darlington Hall has been taken over by the American Faraday, and he now has to adopt a new sense of dignity that involves bantering, which is so alien to him. Yeah, I think we should move on to the end then. When uh, when Ishiguro originally wrote this, he planned to keep Stevens from opening up emotionally, but then he heard Ruby's Arms by Tom Waits, which is vaguely sort of a song about a fella leaving his lover sleeping in the early hours so he can go away on a train. And it's I don't think it's the best of early Waits uh, for me. But Ishiguro says, and I'm quoting here, There comes a moment when the singer declares his heart is breaking that's almost unbearably moving because of the tension between the sentiment itself and the huge resistance that's obviously been overcome to utter it. Waits sings the line with cathartic magnificence and you feel a lifetime of tough guy stoicism crumbling in the face of overwhelming sadness. I heard this and reversed a decision I'd made that Stevens would remain emotionally buttoned up right to the bitter end. I decided that at just one point which I'd have to choose very carefully, his rigid defence would crack and a hitherto concealed tragic romanticism would be glimpsed. And you're going to sing Ruby's Arms for us now, aren't you? I am, yeah. I'm going to do uh, like a chip tune uh, version <laughs> with uh, Ishiguro, uh, <laughs> impersonated by you, is going um, <laughs> <is gonna>, um, <laughs> to sing. But no, that's another thing on the list I have to thank Waits for. Not the song, because it's not very good, to be honest. But um, the scene he's talking about is on the pier at the end, but I've, I've got a bit before then where he finds Miss Kenton. Finds her. He's hunted her down. And he <laughs> and he, um, he says, um, what's the scenario again? She's going back to her husband. So she's talking about her husband. You spend so much time with someone, you find you get used to him. He's a kind, steady man. And yes, Mr. Stevens, I've grown to love him. Miss Kenton fell silent again for the moment, and then she went on. But that doesn't mean to say, of course, there aren't occasions now and then, extremely desolate occasions, when you think to yourself, what a terrible mistake I've made with my life, and you get to thinking about a different life, a better life you might have had. For instance, I get to thinking about a life I might have had with you, Mr. Stevens, and I suppose that's when I get angry over some trivial little thing and leave. But each time I do so, I realise before long, my rightful place is with my husband. After all, there's no turning back the clock now. One can't be forever dwelling on what might have been. One should realise one has as good as most, perhaps better, and be grateful. I do not think I responded immediately, for it took me a moment or two to fully digest these words of Miss Kenton. Moreover, you might appreciate their implications were now such as to provoke a certain degree of sorrow within me. Indeed, why should I not admit it? At that moment, my heart was breaking. 
And that, that's really the first time we hear either of them acknowledge that they had feelings for each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Though Miss Kenton hints quite heavily at it in a playground manner before she leaves Darlington Hall, where she, she goes off to get married. She seems to do... She seems? She seems. Yeah. Sean from beyond the grave. <laughs> she seems to do anything to try and get Stevens to pipe up and make a move, I think. Which he doesn't do, which he doesn't do. It's never really explained why, but surely some amount of fear in there. Mm-hmm. His dad's a butler and he's a butler and the butlering world is, is all he's known. All he's known is to butt. And to leave that might bring his personality all down, you know? Yeah, I think you mentioned it earlier, I think right at the start, maybe. When he's talking to Miss Kenton there and when he's talking to, I think when, he, when he's on the pier at the end, there's another scene. It's a rare moment of vulnerability and it's elevated by that rarity. Any emotions used very sparingly in the novel, but without it, I don't think it works at all. It's not, you know, his dignity or his stoicism as a butler that we connect with, but, but his humanity, which is there, hidden beneath the, the Nazi sympathising. But, but for me, for me, it's important that he restrains from too many outbursts of emotion because it, it wouldn't be right. So I'm, I'm glad he, he is using it sparingly. You know, it is a novel of restrained, restrained prose and restrained character, I guess, very measured. Sure, and it is that restraint. I was listening to the BBC Book Club. James Naughty had Ishiguro on to talk about Remains of the Day, and a lot of book club members were saying that they just couldn't see why Miss Kenton would fall in love with a guy like Stevens. Whereas I found it completely believable, and I think it's for very fact of that restraint. If we were told every detail of every glance and every look, rather than just the professional arguments that they have now and again, then the, the relationship would be too analysed, too dissected, to, to really sing in the page by the time they meet up again at the end. Those book club uh, participants as well, they, they might be might be like a, a ridiculously handsome fella. Yeah. You know, irresistible. Well, that's true. So... Well, they've all got Anthony Hopkins in their hand. Well, he's a handsome guy. Well, yeah. He's, well, he's not bad. Yeah. But she, she's supposed to be like early 20s and he's... 50s or something. Oh, is, is that right? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's blind, but I've heard. Love. Yeah. You said before, the, the, the trip, does he take the trip up north? It, he say, is taking the trip up north. Devon is north, no? Oh, Dev, Devon's as south as you can go, man. Is it? Yeah. Oh, God. Well, see, I'm not from England. <laughs> so every time I said north, I did mean south. Well, where's Darlington Hall? Yeah. North. It's in Darlington, oh, which is okay. in the north. <laughs> He's taking a trip down south. Sorry, I should have mentioned that before. <laughs> no, that's fine. If if listeners are, are hearing this part of the podcast, then I haven't found a way to, to edit that out <laughs> earlier. For anyone um, who hasn't turned off. <laughs> <laughs> they, they turn off, they're, they're going to they're gonna hear you saying that he takes a trip up north, and they go, I'm not reading it, don't listen to this. It's wrong. <laughs> Turn it off, and they won't hear you correcting yourself. Anyway, I think that's the most affecting moment, although a lot is made of the end scene on the pier. I really think that's, that really hits a spot when he says, uh, I might as well admit it, my heart was breaking. Not because of the fact his heart is breaking. The crucial part of the sentence is, I might as well admit it. It's, it's the first time you know he's being honest to you, as a narrator to a reader. And even the, the peer scene where he's sitting talking to a stranger about his life and his regrets just off this wave of heartbreak. 
He's talking to this man about his butlering career and about service to Lord Darlington. This guy has absolutely no idea who Lord Darlington is, hasn't read any of the papers that featured his scandal. And he's telling him how the American Mr. Fatherday has bought over the estate. And, and here, I think, is the, the crucial paragraph. In fact, just before, again, he doesn't acknowledge the fact that he's crying. And I think it returns to the stale nature of the rest of the book in comparison to the, I think I can admit it, my heart was breaking. And because he doesn't admit that he's crying, he just records the fact that this stranger has said, oh dear mate, here you want a hanky? Which could mean anything. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, th this is the, the main paragraph. Quote, Lord Darlington wasn't a bad man. He wasn't a bad man at all. And at least he had the privilege of being able to say that at the end of his life, he had made his own mistakes. His lordship was a courageous man. He chose a certain path in life. It proved to be a misguided one, but there he chose it. He can say that at least. As for myself, I cannot even claim that. You see, I trusted. I trusted in his lordship's wisdom. All those years I served him, I trusted I was doing something worthwhile. I can't even say I made my own mistakes. Really, one has to ask oneself, what dignity is there in that? Yeah, anything to say about that? No. Yeah, no. It's... What dignity is there about that? Good question. I have nothing written down. Hold on. It's kind of just self-explanatory. Maybe we could end on that. Or maybe we could talk about the book as a whole, because, I mean, you talked a bit about it just being restrained in prose. Yeah. Certainly in comparison to the book that came before this, mm -hmm. which Ishiguro himself admits that he was basically rewriting Into the Remains of the Day. The book before this was The Artist of the Floating World, Ishiguro's second novel set in Japan, about an artist who we're led to believe played quite an important role in his community, defending the nationalist actions in war, that kind of thing. And he's being judged retrospectively because of that. Um, but where in The Arts of the Floating World, Ishiguro takes 110 pages or something like that and tries to deal with the problems of a whole country, introduce everyone in the city. The Remains of the Day is so local by comparison. Most of it is in Darlington Hall, where the main players are himself, Miss Fenton, and the Lord Darlington. And even when he travels up north, there is kind of... South. Oh, shit. Even when, he heads, even when he heads up south, there is a kind of drip of introductions, one character at a time. These just passing comments that do nothing for these supplementary characters themselves, but only go to uh, round off Stevens's character. Um, yeah, well, I, I, I ended up on a, on a kind of high tone to the end of that sentence, but I really don't have much else to say. There was an interesting New Yorker review of The Remains of the Day. I mean, it was a glowing review right up to the end, and then it said, The trouble with this novel is that everything works like clockwork. 
It's too perfect. What do you think about that, Elliot? Is, is that a is that a criticism? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like they're just trying to find something to um to have a go at him for. Obviously, they're not they're not fans of, of of heaping praise. Well, Ishiguro responds to this in the Paris Review interview he does by saying that he didn't have a messiness or he lacked a daringness on his part because he was repeating the same kind of themes from previous novels. Well, he he says himself. He says he writes the same novel over and over again. Yeah. That, uh, he said that in the book of review. He can see it right now if you want. <laughs> <laughs> can Sean Connery say it as well? <laughs> but no, this is this is a this is a technique. He, uh, well, to some degree, he tries to use in in his latest novel, Clara and the Sun, available at all good bookstores uh, near you. It's re- sort of restraint and uh, ambiguity in uh, in Remains of the Day, but sure. there's almost a sense in in Clara and the Sun that the ambiguity or the or the restraint leads absolutely nowhere at all. Instead of having kind of multi layers or stuff like that, you you've got instead just something that seems a bit simple, a bit one dimensional. So in in the Remains of the Day, it's more like he's he's using ambiguity to deal with these themes, but he's refined it so much that it's still a very tight bundle mm-hmm. you're getting but in Clara and the Sun he opens up I mean it, mm-hmm. it's almost like he starts with a, a, a lovely knot of complexity and a lovely ball of yarn and then he just rips it apart and, and just leaves it all over the ground he's just he doesn't care but you've got a review of Clara and the Sun coming up in the Booker Review on the website that's booker.com booker.blog booker.blog <laughs> tell your friends we can say thank you to everybody who's tuned in uh, and thank you in advance uh-huh, for checking out Elliot's uh, review of Clara and the Sun. It's the best thing I've ever read. <laughs> but yes, yeah, <laughs> thanks for listening to this book club podcast about Ishiguro's Remains of the Day. Thank you. And we hope you enjoy the remainder of your day. What are we uh, going to be talking about next time, Elliot? Uh, next time we'll be looking at the great Don DeLillo and his um, book of short stories, The Angel Esmeralda, Nine Stories. Right, right up your alley. I'm looking so forward to it. Mm-hmm. Don DeLillo. Rhymes with... Brillo, like a Brillo pad. Brillo pad. <laughs> Don DeBrillo. <laughs> <laughs> book cool.